Steps Weekend 2018. This is Chris and David talking about Step 1. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm a member of Diamond Beginners on a Wednesday at 10 o'clock. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you to the group for asking us to do this again this year. Uh, we get a kick out of doing our presentations because it keeps us sober and it's part of my 12-step work. Um, tonight we are looking at step one and um, I think David's critiqued it several times over the last week again. <laughs> so it may be a little bit different than the one you've seen before. But um, I'll pass it over to him and we'll get things going. Thanks, David. Thanks, Chris. Hi, my name's David. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm a member of the Working With Others group. Um, we'll get straight into it. The first thing I got when I started coming to AA, and that's some time ago, the first thing I got was identification. I heard people sharing about why they came to AA and what, what had been happening in their lives. And I identified with another alcoholic. And that was really useful to me. It was useful for, to me to know that there were other people like me with the same sort of problems with alcohol. So that was really important that I, got, I get that first up, that identification with another alcoholic. And the second thing I got by coming to AA was I got some hope. Because here were some people who'd been through the same or similar things as me, and lots of them were now not drinking, and lots of them were happy about not drinking. And that gave me some hope, because I hadn't really met very many people, or anyone really, who was an alcoholic like me who had actually got well. And when I was first around, I heard people say this, you know, whenever you go to an AA meeting, always look for those two things. Always look for the identification, Look for the similarities between me and that other person. It's really easy for me to find all the differences. I can say, oh, that person's from a different walk of life or they're older than me or younger than me or whatever. They're somehow different. But I'm, it's much better for me if I actually look for the similarities. And the second thing to look for is the hope. And I can always find hope in an AA meeting. You know, I can go to a meeting and I can meet someone who's 40 years sober and I think, well, maybe I can get to be 40 years sober one time. But I also get, get hope from people who are new around. I see people come into my home group and they're usually pretty sick and sorry for themselves when they first arrive. And then just a few weeks later, if they're doing some of the suggested things, they've got a smile on their face, they're staying sober, they've got, you know, they've got a glint in their eye and they're telling me something good's happening in their life. You know, like they've got a new part-time job or one of the kids have said I love you or they've said hello to their mum for the first time in ages. And so I get hope from, from newcomers as well. And, so here's the recommendation for any meeting you go to and for this whole weekend. Through the whole weekend, look for those two things. Look for the identification and look for the hope. The other thing we hope we pre present today, you know, during this weekends like th this, is a bit more information too. So you know, some information about how our 12-step program works. Of course, the thing that I identified with when I was first in AA was with the problem. Because by the time I got to AA, that's all I had lots of problems caused by my drinking. And I got hope when people talked about the solution. And the solution they talked about was the fellowship, and in particular, the, the spiritual 12-step program. Now tonight, because we're talking about step one, we're really going to concentrate on the problem. I need to understand what my problem is, otherwise I'm not going to be interested in the solution. So this is step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And as we go through this, Chris is going to do some readings out of the AA Big Book. This is the book that was written when the very first 100 members got sober. And it outlines 
the program of recovery. The book has a lot to say about step one. The first few tra- chapters are all about step one, but uh, we're going to pick out certain, uh, certain uh, paragraphs to read out. Uh, here's one part. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we're real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterised by countless vain attempts to prove good drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we are alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. So it's when I fully concede to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic, that's when I've taken step one. Now the thing that interests me about this reading is when it talks about no person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different from his fellow. So it's suggesting that if I'm an alcoholic, I'm somehow different from other people. And when I think about it, that's really got to be the case because there's lots of people who drink alcohol and most of them don't end up in the sort of situations I ended up with. Now, the majority of the Australian adult population drinks alcohol at some point, but most of them don't end up in detoxants and hospitalisations because of their drinking. Most of them don't end up in rehabs, and most of them don't end up in AA. So somehow I'm different from the majority of drinkers. And how's that? Well, let's have a look at this guy. This guy's a normal drinker, and he's gone out for the night to have a couple of drinks and have a good time, and he has that first drink, and then a bit later on he's offered another drink, and he has a second drink, and then he gets to a point where he's offered another drink and he says, no thanks, I've had enough. He's had that couple of drinks, he's felt the effects of it, he knows he's got the car in the car park and doesn't want to drive drunk, he knows he has to go to work in the morning and doesn't want to be hung over, but in fact he probably doesn't even need to think about those things. He's gone out to have a couple of drinks, he has those drinks, and then he's able to say, that's it, that's it for me, I'll stop after one or two. Now, occasionally that same guy might have more than one or two. Occasionally he might even get drunk, but most of the time, and any time he decides not to get drunk, he doesn't. I don't identify with that guy. I identify with this guy. Now, this guy is pretty much the same in all other ways, except on the, with the effect that alcohol has on him. He has that first drink and he has a second drink and something different happens. He gets this craving to keep going and keep going. And he forgets about the car in the car park. He forgets about having to go to work in the morning. He even forgets about that promise he made to himself and maybe other people, tonight I'm not going to get drunk, I'm only going to have one or two. But he just keeps going, and keeps going, always after that other drink. And I identify with this guy because I would then do extraordinary things once I'd started to actually get more. When I was first around AA, this is the first thing that I identified with, when people talked about this aspect of the disease. I heard people saying things like, I start with the intention of only having one or two, but then I keep going. I get the taste for it. One's too many and a thousand's not enough. Once I start drinking, I don't want to stop. That's me. I identify with that. I don't understand how someone can leave a restaurant table and you finish their meal and they leave a little bit left in the, in the glass. That makes no sense to me. Just as for that person, it does, makes no sense to, to them why I drink the way that I do. When I first started, there was, an alcoholic, there was a doctor who had treated lots of, like 20,000 alcoholics. Um, and uh, 
they got him, and he had come up with, this is Dr. Sipworth, he'd come up with this new sort of idea about what alcoholism is. Before that, people thought it was some sort of moral failing or people drank that way because they weren't able to cope with life. But he came up and he actually realised that this was happening to people from all walks of life. And the thing they had in common was something physical. This is what he said about it. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So he described it as an allergy. What's an allergy? An allergy is an abnormal reaction to something. Now, some people have, have an allergy to, say, strawberries. For most of us, you know, strawberries are great. Strawberries and cream on pavlova is fantastic. But for a small percentage of people, if they eat strawberries, they get an abnormal reaction. You know, they get, their faces swell up and their throat will get tight. They go really red in the face and it can be quite dangerous. So it's a good idea for someone like that not to eat strawberries. Right? But the point is, it, this only occurs in a small percentage of the population. That's why it's an abnormal reaction. Now, what happens when, I, when we drink alcohol? Well, there's a few effects that we get. First of all, there's a pleasant feeling. You know, uh, I start to forget about my worries. Uh, my thinking slows down. Good reason not to drink and drive because my reaction time has slowed down a bit. Then there's another sort of thing, set of things we start to get. I start in, get increased confidence, uh, reduced social anxiety. I can actually go and talk to the girl and, the, and ask, ask to dance. Uh, increased risk-taking, I'll pick a fight with the bouncer. Another good reason not to drink and drive, because not only is my thinking slowed down, but I'm actually more likely to take risks. Now, the thing about alcohol is that everyone who drinks gets these effects. Everyone experiences these effects. That's why it's such a popular drug. You know? People drink for those effects. My problem is I get this extra effect, this extra effect that I don't actually want. I get this craving to keep going and keep going. Most people don't get that. And in, so in that sense, once I pick up that drink, I've got to keep drinking and keep drinking. So that's the allergy. That's the abnormal reaction that I have to alcohol compared to everyone else who just gets those, those pleasant ones that we're actually after. So, and it only, only occurs in a small percentage of people. I think it might be a larger percentage of the people in this room than in the general population. <laughs> So, what, so it's an allergy, you know, an abnormal reaction. Because of this allergy, I get a craving to keep going. And because of the craving, I'm powerless after the first drink. After I've had that first drink, I don't know what's going to happen next, where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say. But I do know after I've had that first drink, I'm going to want another one and another one and another one after that. How do I know if I have this allergy? Well, this whole step is about honest reflection. I need to think back about the way that I drank what happened when I drank, those times where I promised myself I wasn't going to, oh, other people, I'm not going to get drunk, but I did anyway, those times where I promised the kids I'm going to be at your school concert tonight, I have absolutely every intention of being there, but I start drinking at five o'clock and that takes over and I get drunk and I don't show up to their thing. You know, those times where I say, you know, we're on the way to the wedding and my wife says to me, don't get drunk, don't make a fool of yourself, and I go, no worries, I'll just have one or two but I end up dancing on the table and insulting the bride's mother. All of those things. 
And then I can actually remember, I've known, I've known about this for a long time. I can remember in my early 20s working in an office in the city and occasionally, you know, you go out for lunch. It's a Friday lunchtime, someone's birthday or something. Go out with my work colleagues to have, have lunch at a restaurant. And I can remember work, my work colleagues having a couple of drinks, a couple of glasses of wine with, with their meal or a crown lager. And I can remember saying, no, I won't have a drink. Because I knew if I had one or two drinks at lunchtime and had to go back to the office, I wouldn't want to work. I'd be feeling uncomfortable. I'd be watching the clock. I'd be hanging out for another drink. So I'd rather say no to the one at lunchtime and wait until 5 o'clock and knock off and go and have a real drink. See, even back then, I knew, maybe it was just subconsciously, but I knew there was something different about my drinking compared to those other people. So, my, like my work colleagues, you know, they'd have a couple of drinks at lunchtime, they'd come back to the office, they're probably a bit happier than they otherwise would be because they've had a couple of drinks. But they didn't have this same reaction as me. If you had asked me at the time, I would have said, you know, said to me, have you got a problem with drinking? I'd say, no, I've got a lot of control over my drinking because I can say no to the one at lunchtime. But the reason I was saying no is because I knew after I had that first one, I'd have to keep going and keep going. I had, I had no control after that. Of course, later on in my career, you offer me a, drunk, a drink at lunchtime, I just take it and then not go back to work. But that caused all sorts of other problems. If you're not sure, then the book is... And our program is a really practical one. If you're not sure, then the book actually has a suggestion. We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you're honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. So there's the suggestion. If you're not sure, just try controlled drinking. Now I might suggest that by the time people start coming to AA, we've already tried this. Otherwise, we wouldn't be you know, seeking a way to stop drinking because AA is about abstinence, okay? But this is the point of this, you know? It's about self-diagnosis. I have to understand what it is to be an alcoholic and I have to actually identify with that myself. I like a little story a friend of mine tells about, you know, he was coming to AA and he was hearing about this, you know, once I start drinking, I get the craving and he wasn't sure that applied to him and he was walking down, it was actually down Chapel Street in South, uh, South, uh, South Melbourne there. Oh, in uh, South Yarra there, and he thought, I'm going to try it out, try this thing out, right, just to prove that I'm not an alcoholic like those, like those guys at AA. So he walked into a pub and he ordered one drink and uh, a pot, uh, and he had the pot of beer and he got up and he walked out and he thought, fantastic, see, I was able to walk out of the pub after that one, one beer. And he walked further on down the street and he came to another, truck, another pub and he said, see, I've proved that I'm not, not an alcoholic because I was able to walk out of that pub, I'm going to prove it again. And he walked into the second pub and had a drink and walked out again and went all the way down Chapel Street there. Back in those days, a lot more pubs than there is now, proving to himself that he could have one and walk out and he was just as drunk as he otherwise would be anyway. So because of this craving, we get drunk again and again and again, certainly a lot more than most other people. And because of that, because I'm drunk a lot of the time, there are consequences to that. So I'm drunk a lot of the time and uh, I start drinking more and more. Over time it gets worse. I start making really bad decisions in life. I put myself at risk. I put other people at risk. I do things that I forget about because I'm blacked out. I do things that I wish I could forget about because, you know, because I'm so, so ashamed of them. 
And then I start lying about how much I'm drinking and covering up, sneaking drinks, covering up, you know, hiding the bottles and then hiding the empties. I understand I'm hiding the bottles so my wife can't find them and tip them out, but why am I hiding the empties? It's because I'm ashamed of the way that I drink and I know that I drink differently to other people. I'm breaking promises, I'm being, becoming more and more selfish and self-centred and I, then I start isolating. And then on top of that I start getting, and because of that, I start getting a whole lot of other problems. I start getting family problems. And I'm getting employment problems because I'm not showing up to work or I'm hungover. I'm getting social problems. People don't want to know me if I'm behaving this way. I'm getting financial problems because I'm wasting all my money on alcohol. I'm getting relationship problems because I'm having to lie and cover up and break promises. I'm getting health problems that's affecting my health in all sorts of ways. And I'm possibly getting legal problems from drink driving. Driving depends on what other sorts of substances I'm taking as well. And what happens to an alcoholic like me? I look at my life and it's getting worse and worse and my drinking's out of control. And occasionally I'll come up with a really bright idea. Really bright idea. My life's a mess because of my drinking. And I have this idea, I'll give up drinking. And for someone like me, that's a really smart idea. In fact, it's a very sane idea. If every time I start drinking, it tends to go out of control, the smart thing to do, the sane thing to do, is don't pick up the first drink. If I don't pick up the first drink, it won't set off the craving, and I can then set about fixing up all those other problems I've got in my life. So I make that, make that sane decision. I know I'm powerless after the first drink, so I've decided to stop drinking. That's it, I'm quitting, I'm quitting. I used to do this a lot, I'm gonna quit. Think about quitting, what happens when I quit? Well, I immediately go into withdrawal. One of the reasons why we hesitate to quit is because I know if I've been drinking a, long, a lot for a long time, if I suddenly stop, it's going to be really uncomfortable. A whole lot of symptoms are going to get from that. Good idea to get medical help to do this, particularly if I've been drinking a long time and a lot. Right? But and it's tough. It's really, a really tough time to actually go through that withdrawal, uh, do that <coughs> detox. But the good news is it doesn't take very long. Seven to ten days, as I said, your best to get you know, medical advice to do that, medical help, or going to a detox, even going to hospital. In the end, the only way I could stop drinking for even a few days was to be hospitalised to do it. But I'd do it. I'd make the effort. Right? Do, that, do the hard yards, that seven to ten, that ten days, and I'd come out of there feeling heaps better. You know? Have a few good meals, vitamin B injection, that sort of thing, and then I'm raring to go again. So... I've done the hard yards, I've done the detox, I've stopped drinking for a few days, so now comes the next question. Can I stay stopped? Then I found out that I actually had a second problem. I can't stop thinking about drinking. The thoughts of drinking are still there, leading me back to do it again and again. And AA refers to this as, the, as an obsession. So they're the two parts of the disease. The first being physical allergy. When I drink, it goes out of control. And then my other problem is I also have this obsession with alcohol. This thought keeps on coming back into my head, often when I least expected it. Right? Now, for some time, I resist the temptation. You know, I've made, I've made the decision, I've done those hard yards, I've done the detox, you know, getting back on, to, on top of things, and I resist it. But then one day it comes along and something changes. I have that thought to drink, and then my next thought is, oh, this time it'll be different. So there's that tonight. Or perhaps I start thinking, oh, I'm okay to drink now. I haven't had a drink for three months, so I must be okay. Must be okay. There's that tonight. And there's another type of denial. I get this other thought that says, oh, last time wasn't that bad. 
know, my wife was threatening to leave, I was in trouble at work, I spent a week in a detox, right? But things aren't so bad that I need to quit altogether. And if I've got that sort of denial, I'm going to pick up a drink as well. Well, perhaps, perhaps my next thought, you know, I have that thought to have a drink and I somehow come up with some sort of excuse. I know I shouldn't do it, but I can't cope without a drink. I can't, or because I'm nervous about something, or I'm angry at someone, or I'm worried. I know I shouldn't, but I'm sad, or I'm jealous of those people who can drink. And the big book talks about any of those excuses as being insanely insufficient compared to the suffering that I know is going to happen if I start drinking again. And then there were those other times where I have that thought to have a drink and I'd start this argument in, in my head. Yes, I will. No, I won't. Yes, I will. Anyone identifying with that guy? No. That, might, that might go on for some days or some hours or sometimes only a few minutes. But the only way to win that argument, you know, the only way to stop that argument to, to me was end up, end up saying, yes, I will. And then there were these other times. I'd have that thought to have a drink and there'd be no second thought. No thought... No excuse, no resistance. I just go ahead and do it. And this is the bit that really scared me the most, because this has happened to me more than once. But I just found, even though I'd quit for a while, I suddenly found myself drinking, and I'd go, and after I started drinking, I started going, and why the hell did I do that? <coughs> because with that denial, I can come to the meetings, and I can think to myself and really understand that I really am an alcoholic. And most people... You know, by the time they get to AA, they're, they're suspecting that anyway. But if I really look at the way that I drink, I can get past that denial. And then with those excuses, I come to lots of AA meetings and I listen for, to some people coming back from the last. And some of the time, some, not all the time, but some of them you can hear when they're telling us about why they busted, what happened before they busted, they've somehow come up with some excuse about why they needed to do it this time or why they didn't need to come to so many meetings, or why they didn't do, need to do the program. And when I hear someone else use those excuses, I can see how ridiculous those excuses are compared to what happened to that person afterwards. And then with that argument in my head, I think to myself, with a bit more willpower, a bit more strength, a few more strategies, a few more phone numbers in my, in my phone that I can call, right? with a bit more strength, I'll be able to win that argument every time. But how do I combat against this? where the thought just appears in my mind and there's no second thought, I just reach out and take the drink. It scares me because this happened to me more than once. So the obsession is thoughts of drinking that keep returning. How do I know if I have the obsession to this extent? Well, once again, it's an honest reflection. I think back about the way that I drank, but in this case, more about those times where I wanted to stop and wasn't able to stop or those times where I actually did stop for a few days or weeks or months and then went and picked it up again. Once again, it's a practical program. If you're not sure, then there's a suggestion. If anyone questions whether he's entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. If he's a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remained sober for a year or more becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions, most of them within a few weeks. So there's the suggestion, just stop. Just with my own willpower, stop drinking and stay stopped. 
Now, if I do that, well, I've now been like 28, 29 years sober because all it would have taken was one decision and one detox. Right? Well, I'm nowhere near that, that long sober. Okay. I would have just made that decision and stayed sober and I wouldn't be here talking to you and I wouldn't be calling myself an alcoholic and I wouldn't be coming to AA if I could just make that same decision to stop. Although I tried again and again and again. I drank for 17 years and the last three years of that were desperately trying to stop and failing and failing and failing. I knew I couldn't do this. But I do know, you know, some people can. Some people can. You may have met some people, even in AA, who say, all I do is I don't pick up a drink a day at a time and I go to uh, regular meetings and that's it. That's all I need to do. I can do. And they can do it on their own willpower. I'm not one of those people. I'm not one of those people. I couldn't stop drinking no matter how hard I tried. And I tried, and I tried. But have a look at a story. This is out of the AA Big Book. Now, you notice the way the book's structured, the first 160-odd pages describe the 12-step program, and the back part of the book is a whole lot of personal stories. And uh, over the years, each time they print a new, a new edition, the first 160-odd pages stay exactly the same, but they change some of the stories in the back. And the latest one you can buy these days, that green one there, all the stories in the back of the book are actually Australian stories. And in modern stories, there's a story in there that talks about waking up with a hangover and going to check Facebook to see what happened the night before. Right? But, but, but there's certain examples in the front part of the book. You know, this first part that hasn't changed in all this year is, and Jim's one of those. Because Jim's story is a prime example of alcoholism. This is, what it says, this is what it says about Jim. Our first example is a friend we should call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable world war record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. So there's Jim, car salesman. Uh, he's respected, good at his job, he's well-liked, and he's intelligent. But when he drinks, it goes out of control. So we know he wants to stop drinking. We know that because he's actually going into the asylum seeking medical help. In fact, he's relapsed six times and keeps, keeps going back to try and stop. He knows about alcoholism. It's been explained to him, particularly the craving aspect of it. And he's admitted that he's a real alcoholic. So Jim has actually taken the first step. This just shows you that the first step on its own doesn't stop us drinking. If the first step stopped us drinking, we wouldn't need the other 11. So Jim has actually taken the first step. He's admitted that he's a real alcoholic. And he knows about the consequences. He knows that if he starts drinking again, it'll go out of control, he'll end up back in the asylum, he'll end up hurting his family again. But he got drunk again. So the next part of the story 
comes out of the hospital, out of the, out of the, uh, the asylum, and stays sober for some months. He gets another job selling cars, happens to be in the place that he used to own, but he's selling cars. He goes out this particular day, a few months sober, and he stops at a roadside cafe. This is a cafe he'd been to many times before when he was drinking, but also since he was sober. Uh, so there's nothing out of the ordinary. He says in his story, he, he thought he maybe he would find someone to sell a car to. And he goes into the cafe and he orders a sandwich for lunch, just a normal day, and then decides to have a glass of milk with his sandwich. So he's sitting there and then this is what he said happened. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. And so he's picked up that drink. What, what was he doing? He was sitting there having a glass of milk and a sandwich, and this is the obsession. This thought came into his head, if I put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it won't hurt. He said there was this vague feeling, just this vague feeling that this may not be a smart idea. Notice it didn't come rushing back to him. I'm an alcoholic, I've been in, in the asylum six times already. If I start drinking again, it'll go out of control, I'll hurt my family, I'll end up back in the asylum. That didn't occur to him. Just this vague feeling, maybe not a good idea, but his very next thought is, it'll be okay on a full stomach. And he picks up the drink, and he's off and running back to the asylum again. This is how the book describes this sort of thinking. <clears throat> He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favour of the foolish idea that he could take whisky if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. So this is the insanity, the fact that he knew he was an alcoholic. <clears throat> he knew that, he'd admitted he was an alcoholic, he's taken the first step, but he picked it up anyway. So this is the insanity in, the, in that first step. Talking about insanity, I'll talk about this place. This place is, uh, this is St Vincent's Hospital. They're in Nicholson, that's the Nicholson Street building. In that particular building, on the third floor, used to be a particular ward. All the wards in St Vincent's Hospital are named after saints. So there's St Peter's Ward and St John's Ward is the surgical ward. And the top floor of that was St Dimpner's Ward. St. Dimpler is the patron saint of insanity because her dad was crazy, and that's the cycle on that top floor. Now, I was there 27 years ago. I was there. I'd been into one detox before that. Um, I'd come out of that and stayed sober for uh, 10 weeks or so, and then I relapsed, and my doctor, was, he was trying to work out why I kept on picking up a drink again, and so there weren't, weren't the sort of the rehabs around the, the, the then there are now. So put me into the, into the hospital there. Um, I was there voluntarily. I wasn't committed or anything, but I was there to stop drinking. And I was there for a few weeks, trying to do everything I was told to do and seeing, seeing a doctor every day, all that sort of thing. And they let me out for half a day. I had to go out, uh, back to Ivanhoe, where I lived, to sign a new lease on the flat that I had. And so they trusted me. They let me out, and I caught the train from the hospital out to Ivanhoe, went to the real estate agent, signed the lease, went to the flat, made sure someone had been feeding the cat and uh, checked the mail and stuff. And then I went and caught the train uh, back to the railway station to catch the train back into the city and back into the hospital. And I got to the Ivanhoe railway station, crossing over the railway footbridge. There was a, there was a train there 
As I crossed over, the train pulled out and I missed this train by about 30 seconds. Now across the road from the Ivanhoe railway station is the Ivanhoe Hotel, so I walked across the road into the bar, sat down and had a drink. Now, I had quite a few drinks there actually, and I started to, started to wonder, hang on, what am I doing here? Now I'm, meant to, I'm actually in hospital at the moment, being treated for alcoholism, and now here I am <coughs> drinking. And I kept drinking for some time, and then I started feeling guilty about it, and some people I knew came in, and, uh, and I thought, oh, they might find out. I still had the hospital tag on my wrist, didn't want them to realise I was actually in hospital being treated for alcoholism. And I caught a much, much later train uh, into the city and back to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, my doctor happened to still be there. She wasn't normally there at that time of day, but she smelt the grog on the breath and she said to me, have you been drinking? And I said, no. Right? Here's someone I've been trying to be honest with every day for the previous few weeks. And I have a couple of drinks and I start lying to her. And that's one of the symptoms of, of alcoholism as I start lying about my drinking. Okay? But she said I can smell it. And she took me aside. I can remember she took, took me into this little consulting room, sat me down. She asked me this question. She said, what made you decide to have a drink? And I didn't understand the question because I hadn't made a decision. I didn't stand on that railway footbridge and say to myself, I've just missed that train by 30 seconds. I now have a choice of, of going sitting on the platform and waiting just 18 minutes for the next train or I could go across the road and have a drink and then think about the consequences and way up where, where my circumstances and all that. None of that came to mind. I missed the train by 30 seconds. I walked across the road and had a drink. And it was only after that that I realised what a terrible idea that was. And this really scared me. This is this, this instance where there was no argument, there was not denial, it wasn't, it wasn't no excuse. I just found myself drinking. And when I couldn't explain it. I couldn't explain it to her because I couldn't explain it to myself. Really scary place to be. So these are the two things, the craving and the obsession. They go together and they, they form this cycle. So this thought, the obsession is, this, is the, this thought that keeps on coming back. Now for some time I might resist it, but then denial comes in. Or I start making excuses why I should be having a drink. Or I have that argument in my head and I lose that argument. It ends up being, yes, I will. Or there's just no thought of the consequences. And I do the insane thing and I pick up that drink. And when I pick up the drink, the craving kicks in. And it goes out of control and my life goes bad. All those problems come rushing back into my life. Relationship problems and money problems and health problems and employment problems all come rushing back into my life. My life falls apart once again. And once again I make a decision to stop. So I make that decision you know, and get some help to do that, get some medical help and I stop. I do the detox and when I stop drinking, life gets better. Because I'm showing up to work on time, I've got more money in my pocket, my health's improving, relationships are improving because I'm not having to lie and cover things up. Life's getting better. But at the same time, there's this obsession to have a drink. It keeps on coming back and coming back and coming back. I resist it for a while, but eventually comes a day where I do the insane thing and I pick it up again. And when I pick it up again, it sets off the craving. And life turns bad again. And so once again, I make that decision I'm going to stop. And whenever I stop drinking, life gets better. Things get better, but the obsession is still there. And I do that insane thing and I pick it up again. And there's this cycle and it goes on and on. And this, for me, it was nearly three years of this, going round and round. 
wanting to stop drinking, desperately wanting to stop, and I would stop, get my, get my, uh, my life back together again, get a new job, change my circumstances, get, stay away from the old crowd that made me, I thought made me drink, and then I'd pick it up again. And it would all fall apart again. You know? Going to a detox, sober up for a while, now it's even harder to get things back in order again. But get things back in order again, life gets better again because I'm not drinking. But the obsession is still there and it leads me to thinking about it, thinking about it. And then I do the insane thing and I pick it up and it kicks off the craving, craving again. And if I go round and round that cycle long enough, eventually life doesn't even get better. Even when I stop. I've just made an absolute mess in my life. You know, lot, my wife left, she took the kids, we sold the house, she took all the money. My health was failing. I'm going in and out of detoxes. Uh, I lost my job. You know, it ruined my career. And I recognised when I came into AA, this cycle was that's the cycle I was on. So the two things: because of the craving, I'm powerless after the first drink, and because of the obsession, I'm powerless before the first drink. I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life becomes unmanageable. Have a quick look at another story in the book, also out of the front part of the book. This is Fred's story. It's also in that same chapter. It's a chapter called More About Alcoholism. Now, Fred's a partner in an accounting firm, so he's got a good job, you know, uh, quite a very senior guy, probably makes a lot of money and stuff, but he's also an alcoholic. And over time, it gets worse and worse. And he ends up in hospital. And it talks about him as being, he has an attractive personality, makes friends with everyone, good income, happily married, stable, well-balanced, and good judgment to do with everything else except for one thing, except for alcohol, because he's an alcoholic. And over time, it gets worse, ends up being hospitalised, and he comes out of it, he finds out about the disease, and he identifies with the craving aspect and makes a commitment that he's never going to drink again. He actually says he has no excuse for drinking. There's no reason for him to drink again. And uh, so the next part of the story, he's out of the hospital, and stays sober for a few months, and he has to. So just over a few months, he had to go from Washington, from uh, New York, where he lived, to Washington as part of his job to do a presentation for a government body. And uh, so, you know, a couple of months sober, part of his job, he's gone to Washington. This is what he said about it. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. So there's Fred. He's having a great day. He's got past the detox part of it. He's even got past that you know, early, that early sobriety, restless, irritable, you know, discontent at the time. He's actually getting on with life, getting on with his job, and it's a great day. Not a worry in the world. He talks about the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. And this is what happened next. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the, threshold, gosh, crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail in my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. 
I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I'd made no fight whatever against the first strength. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. So there's Fred, he's done a lot of crazy things there. He's gone missing for three days, doesn't even know where he was. But of course he did those things because he was drunk, because he was intoxicated. The really insane thing he did is when he was stone cold sober. He had the thought to have a drink and he went ahead and did it. He says, you know, not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. Now he's even worse than Jim. At least Jim had a vague feeling this is not a good idea. He hasn't even thought of this at all. Now, you notice here, some people who haven't experienced this think that what happens? Why does an alcoholic, after he's been sober for some time, pick up a drink again? And they assume that it must be because, must be because we get this sudden, overwhelming urge, uh, uncontrollable urge that we, and craving that we have to go and have a drink. But that's not necessarily the case, and not the case in this. He didn't get this uncontrollable urge, I must have a drink. He just, the thought crosses his mind. And the problem is, it doesn't, it doesn't remember that he's an alcoholic and he doesn't think about the consequences. That's the insanity of it. Tell you another story. A number, number couple of years after that hospital stay, multiple detoxes, uh, hospitalisation a couple of times, and I get a job and I, and I put my life back together and then I relapse again over and over again. Ended up in a detox um, uh, it, uh, to Paul House. I came out of there, and by that point, I'm homeless. I'd lost the flat in Ivanhoe, had nowhere to live, and my parents convinced my younger brother, but a much younger brother, convinced him to let me stay at his place. So I've come out of there, absolutely determined, I'm never going to drink again. Part of, part of the deal of being there was don't drink. So I'm getting on with life again. Got another job, got a job with Telstra, was really good, with some smart people, and I really like the job. Things are getting better, um, and getting on with life. I remember this particular day, sober for a few months, and, uh, and that was a Thursday, I had some money in my pocket, I wasn't working that day, and I had to do some washing. So I thought, I'll do my brother a favour as well, I'll do, you know, I'll do some washing for him as well. So I got two big loads of washing, went down to the local laundromat, put them into the, into the washing machine, and walked across the road and had a drink. Now I can remember a whole lot of things that happened in that pub that afternoon. Uh, some people that I met, I can remember playing pool, I can remember some of the conversations I had. I can also remember thinking, gee, I shouldn't be drinking. But now that I've started, I might as well keep going because you know, the craving kicked in. And I kept on drinking and I didn't go back and pick up the washing for another two days. Uh, someone had put it in a cardboard box and shoved it in the corner. This amazed me that this was actually possible. That, you know, in the situation that I'd been in, once again in a detox again, almost homeless, and the deal was I wasn't meant to drink and I didn't want to drink, and I found myself drinking again. When I eventually got to AA, soon after that, and it took my, my brother a little while to work out what was going on, but he took me up to uh, a Chupa where I went in my last hospitalisation. From there I went to Bendigo to a rehab where I was introduced to AA. And I remember someone reading this part out of the book. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering 
and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defence against the first dream. Well, that's what's been happening to me. I came into AA and I met people, when I read the book, I met people who said the same thing was happening to them, that they were powerless over alcohol. They couldn't stop drinking no matter how hard they tried. So the first step becomes this really simple question for each one of us. Am I powerless over alcohol? Simple question, that first step. I can break it down like this. Does my drinking go out of control once I start? Big tick. I've known that for a long time. I knew that I drank differently to other people. Okay? That's why I, I, I avoided places where there wasn't anything to drink. You know? Or you offered me one or two drinks and I wouldn't take them because it wouldn't be enough. All those things. All, I had lots of evidence of this, that I don't drink like other people. Second question, so have I decided to stop? Have I made that same decision to stop drinking? Well, I certainly made that decision. And I made it over and over and over again. I was desperate to stop drinking. And then the third question, have I kept picking up a drink despite my efforts to stop? <coughs> well, for me, that was true. I was so desperate and I just failed and failed and failed. Not realising that there were other people like me. I was avoiding, I was getting professional help and stuff, but I was avoiding AA because I didn't think a bunch of amateurs had anything to offer. But I came to AA and I found people like me with the same disease with the same desperation. Not only that, found people who found an answer. If I'm powerless after the first drink because of the craving, and I'm powerless before the first drink because of the obsession, then I'm powerless over alcohol and my life becomes unmanageable. And the first step is admitting that's true. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. I like the way it talks about we admitted. It doesn't say we decided or we discovered. It says we admitted. And that sort of implies it's something that I already know or suspect, but I admit it. And it comes down to, it's back with uh, this, this slide here, you know, I, can, I could say tick, tick, tick in the head. I could sit at the bar and go tick, tick, tick to those three questions. But when it moves from up here in my head down here, and I realise if that's true, I'm in deep, deep trouble. Okay. So that's the insanity. The, first, the insanity is in the first step. The fact that I keep picking up again and again. Think about that first step. There's no, there's no hope in the first step. There's no solution in the first step. The first step is just acknowledging the problem. The hope comes in step two and the rest of the 12-step 12, the 12 program. And for the rest of this weekend, you know, that's what we'll be talking about and the speakers will be talking about the rest of the program. So step two, you know, I've admitted I'm powerless over alcohol. Step two suggests that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So step two is the hope of sanity. Step one requires honesty. Honest reflection about the way that I drank, what happened when I drank, but also, really importantly, about my inability to stop and stay stopped on the corner. Whereas step two requires an open mind. If everything that I've tried to do to stop drinking has failed, I need an open mind, open enough to listen to what's working for other people, even if you're suggesting something really radical, like a spiritual 12-step program. So step one comes from desperation. It comes from desperation and suffering and repeated failure. Not a nice place to be on step one. I don't want to stay there. Whereas step two comes from inspiration. I come to AA and I meet people like me who have recovered. And I'm inspired. And I can say, well, if that's working for them, maybe this program will work for me. 
Step one is being honest about the problem. And step two is simply believing in this solution, in this spiritual solution. And the rest of the steps, as I said, we'll be talking about this for the rest of the weekend, is about applying the solution that's been found to work by millions of people in AA. So we know about the problem in step one. Step two is believing we can recover. Then step three, I need to make a decision. A decision to take a spiritual path in life and a decision to go on with the rest of this process. It's a decision to turn my life and will over to a power greater than myself. Then I've got to do some work. Take inventory in steps four and five. Become willing to change in steps six and seven. And then looking for the harm I've done to other people and making amends in steps eight and nine. And it tells me in the book, by the time I get to step ten, sanity is being returned. By the time I get to step ten, I'm no longer obsessed by alcohol. I'm no longer doing the insane thing and picking up that drink again and again. There's been a revolutionary change in my way of living and thinking. It does say, it says, you know, we seldom be interested in liquor. It doesn't say the obsession's gone entirely. Right? The obsession's not gone entirely because occasionally the thought comes back, but what's gone is the insanity. I don't do the insane thing of picking up again because it, on those occasions where occasionally I might think of a drink, I recall from, from a hot flame. It's easily pushed aside. I don't do that anymore. I've recovered. Then I've got to do certain things to stay that way. So steps 10 and 11 become my daily program for staying sober, continuing inventory on a daily basis, and prayer and meditation in step 11. And then the last step is the most important and most powerful step of all to keep me sober. That's why we do this, to keep us sober, is to pass on the message that was given to me. This simple message. It's a message of two parts. A message of hopelessness in the first step, and a message of hope in the second step. So, step one, a question for each of us. Am I powerless over alcohol? I know for sure I am. Thanks for letting me share. Information about the annual Melbourne AA Steps Weekend is available from www.stepsweekend.aagroup.org.au. Thanks for letting us share.